0: In 1948, the people in the British colony of Newfoundland faced a choice. They could become an independent dominion within the British Empire, or they could vote to join
1: Canada in confederation. The anti-Confederates are not going to get away with it.
2: But St. John's was an anti-Confederate headquarters. Watch in
3: particular the attractive bait which will be held out to lure our country into the Canadian mousetrap.
0: Listen to the Stories Behind the History podcast for our special series, How Did Newfoundland Join Canada? Available now wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is a CBC podcast.
0: This is a Secret Life of Canada crash course,
3: just a little bit of history. Hey, Phelan. Hey, Leah. So with everything that's been going on in Ukraine, we've been getting emails from listeners asking us to look into Ukrainian-Canadian history, which I thought would be a good idea.
0: Yeah, and we have. Our very first episode was about how Canada kicked all Indigenous people off their land, called it Banff, started selling candies, uh, (laughs) and then forced interned Ukrainian prisoners to build the town.
3: We really started off positive, didn't we? Well, I
0: think we set the tone.
3: We really did. Well, I thought we should try and answer the question. Why does Canada have the second largest Ukrainian population after Russia? And after Ukraine? Well, yeah, but we're, we're talking about diaspora, so people who leave their home country for somewhere else. OK, gotcha. So why do we have
0: such a large Ukrainian population here?
3: I do not know. So I got into contact (laughs) with Dr. Rhonda Hinther. She's a history professor at Brandon University, and she's written extensively about Ukrainians in Canada. And so I just started at the beginning and asked her when the first Ukrainian immigrants came over and why. Why?
1: the first uh, mass migration of Ukrainians from Ukraine to Canada uh, really started in the 1890s. Um, They were a very, very large wave that extended to the start of the First World War in 1914. So there were about 170,000 folks that came at that time, uh, mostly from areas that we now call Western Ukraine, so Galicia, Bukovina, Many were recruited to come as farmers to support the Canadian government's settler-colonial agenda to displace Indigenous communities and people, the prairies, with white European settlers. Right. And
0: this was a big pitch by the government of Canada at this time. They were selling this idea of free, uninhabited land, as if Indigenous people had not already been living on the land since time immemorial. This was all part of the Doctrine of Discovery. So this was a set of statements made by the Pope that decreed that any land inhabited by non-Christians, it was seen as free for the taking. Explorers would land on our shores and claim our territory for whatever smelly monarch they bowed to. (laughs) I mean, you know, it was old times.
3: They were smelly. Everybody was smelly. Everybody was smelly. Yes.
0: And the doctrine of discovery is still a part of Canadian law today.
3: Yeah. And to clarify, the Ukrainians who were coming over during this time period were predominantly Christians. There were some Jewish immigrants that came as part of the same wave um, from areas that we now consider Ukraine. But their history is very different and they weren't considered to be Ukrainian at this time. So the people who did come did so because of Canada's push to bring settlers over. And we did an episode on a
0: big land grab that happened here in Canada. Um, If you want to hear about that, you can
3: uh, search for it in our feed. It's it's called Mounties Always Get Their Land.
0: I've always wondered about the connection between Ukrainians and indigenous folks on the prairies because I know there's some history there. Um, Like the Kokum scarf, Uh, it's those flowered scarves that you'll see on, you know, older Cree women sometimes Mm -hmm. and Ukrainian women. Um, It's also called a Baba scarf. And now it's worn by a lot of different indigenous people. And it's taken on a bit of a new importance in showing support and solidarity with Ukrainians. And from what I understand, the item, it, it became shared through community building and trade and I think just proximity to each other.
3: Yeah, there there are a lot of posts and articles about it, um, and it's it's really lovely little piece of history.
0: So, out of the hundred and seventy thousand or so people who came in that first wave, that that number that uh, Rhonda mentioned, mm-hmm. um, how many of them? How many of them stayed? How many of them left?
1: Most of them ended up staying, and they ended up uh, farming or working in some capacity, settling in cities um the often often discussed in the history of Ukrainian Canadians in Canada during this period is this idea that they were sold uh, a vision of Canada where the streets were paved with gold, which meant there would be unending economic opportunity for migrants who came to Canada. But that really didn't materialize for very many. And I think that uh, many hopes were dashed as a result.
3: It makes sense that not everyone loved it here or even had a great life when they arrived, and then at the same time, you know, that they didn't go back because there wasn't necessarily much to go back to. Ukrainians mm. were heavily suppressed in the Russian Empire at this time. And also, you know, that's a time that travel was not easy. When Ukrainians got here, did everyone, you know, where where did
0: they settle and why? Or, you know, was it was it just the prairie provinces or was it all across Canada?
1: Well, it was mostly the prairies. And this was for two reasons. And they chose to live where they did uh, because of economic opportunity and also because of the presence of other Ukrainians who could help with their adjustment and provide community, provide job leads, provide material and moral support, and provide other necessities of life that people needed.
0: That makes sense. You want to go to where you know some people or at least they know the language that you're speaking. Okay, so so after this big first wave, did Ukrainians keep coming to Canada?
3: Well, after 1914, there were other waves, but none as large. Here's why.
1: The wave that came during the 1920s, that was about 70,000 people. And they came largely to supply workers for railroads and other burgeoning industries that were seeking cheap labor and vulnerable workers to exploit. Uh, Additional waves came after the Second World War. So there were about 34,000 that came following World War II. And then there were later waves as well uh, following the fall of, the, of Soviet Ukraine in the 1990s and beyond. That's actually a huge
0: amount of immigrants when you, when you think about it, because when we hear about other waves of immigration historically, you know, they're, they're much smaller in numbers, mm-hmm. more like 20 people or like up to maybe 10,000.
3: Yeah. And, you know, not to mention, like, we've explored this a lot on this show, but there have been a lot of clever laws throughout history in Canada restricting Asian and black and Jewish immigrants, just just to name a few. Um, Even today, many immigration advocates will tell you that our government has deep bias when it comes to certain refugees and immigrants, specifically from non-white nations.
0: Right. So 170,000 in the first wave and then 70,000. That's pretty extraordinary.
3: Yeah, completely. And then it all makes sense why we have the second largest diaspora population in the world.
1: With all of those people, with all of those bodies, with all of those voices, I think it serves uh, in many ways to help maintain a very uh, very vivid and vocal presence of Ukrainians in Canada. The biggest question I had for Rhonda was, what is
3: something that most Canadians don't know about early Ukrainian settlers? Because I've always had this image of the strong Ukrainian farmer type, and I was just curious if that was right.
1: I think that that first wave of settlers was actually made up of a great number of Ukrainians who never ended up being agricultural settlers. Uh, Many, especially by the 1910s, were coming as workers, and the agricultural opportunities were really drying up by that point. Uh, and many of those who, who came as workers ended up being involved in and on the forefront of early labor organizing in Canada in many forms as a response to the, the exploitation and the general ill treatment that they faced on the jobs here. This came at great risk, as the threat of deportation was always there for those seen as rabble-rousers, and the internment of Ukrainians and other Eastern Europeans during World War I was one of the federal government's and other authorities' responses to this labor organizing. So many of those who were rounded up and ended up in internment camps during World War I were apprehended because of their labor activism.
0: So you get put into a labor camp because you are trying to make life better for laborers. A wonderful Canada.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty wild. But at the same time, it's pretty amazing that it didn't seem to diminish the community's organizing and pride. I mean, I grew up in the province with the world's largest Ukrainian Easter egg and largest pierogi (laughs) on a fork. So the Ukrainian spirit is still very strong in Alberta. And doesn't Alberta have uh, the... The biggest UFO landing pad? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And the world's smallest suspension bridge and the smallest wedding chapel. Um, but I don't think actually Ukrainians are responsible for all of that. It's it's a weird place. <laughs>
0: <laughs> OK, so with this big population of people from Ukraine, how pervasive is the language? Is it is it spoken widely in Canada today?
1: Well, I wondered the same thing. Well, I think that's a really interesting and complicated question. Uh, some parents... Uh, And I'm thinking back right now to that that first cohort that came uh, before World War I, certainly passed on the language to their kids because that was all they spoke uh, in many cases. But as time passed, many felt concerned that speaking Ukrainian could disadvantage their children, especially if it meant that their children might speak English with an accent, and this could set them up to be perceived negatively as a quote-unquote foreigner. Uh, This could make it tough, many believed, and this is a belief that was grounded in personal lived experience. Like
3: many other European immigrants, early Ukrainians worried that they would lose out if they were not perceived as English. So they began to anglicize their names to make life easier for their children and grandchildren, but then, you know, the language was lost.
1: This is certainly what happened in my family. I'm Ukrainian. I'm I'm third generation Ukrainian-Canadian. My great-great-grandparents came in that first wave. And so growing up, I would hear my great-grandmother and my grandmother speaking Ukrainian when we would go to visit, but I never learned myself more than a smattering of words. So I could say, Dobro Zupa, good soup, Baba, um, and Dobry Dane, hello. Um, But beyond that, this meant that I really couldn't communicate directly as a child with my great-grandmother. The language survived, of course. There's still many Ukrainian language
3: schools throughout Canada and community groups that offer classes. But it's not as large of a speaking population today as the group that came over in the first wave. Right. And I mean, people who can speak that language are probably going to be in
0: demand as we now see this new wave of refugees fleeing the war at the time of recording this episode, Canada Border Services Agency estimates that 104,000 Ukrainian refugee applications have been approved and over 200,000
2: people have applied. It's been a long journey from war-torn Ukraine to this quiet part of Western Manitoba. But Hanna Polomarchuk and Mykola Preznajny have finally made it. I can't believe that we are safe. Having arrived in Manitoba with just two small backpacks, just ahead of a massive winter storm, they headed into town to get supplies. This part of Manitoba has a large Ukrainian population. Word of their arrival spread quickly, so it didn't take long for this to happen. <laughs> that instant connection making them feel instantly at home. It's unexpected, yeah,
1: to to meet people, and uh, uh, she said uh, she's from Vinnytsia, it is basically like maybe 30 kilometres from the place we were growing up.
2: Pelomarchuk and Prezazhny are still worried about those they left behind in Ukraine, worried too about the future of their country, but they're grateful to have this chance to start a new life.